0: All right, if you could take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22, I want to go through one of Jesus' parables. Uh, For me, it's in my top 10 favorites of his parables, you know, I don't know exactly where I'd put it, but I I love this parable. And uh, it's just an amazing parable. It's a parable of the wedding feast, you know, when he invites, he gives a picture of salvation that the Father offers through his Son, which he gives to the world, and the invitation to come to this glorious wedding. And everyone's invited. The king throws it because he has the resources and the power and the sovereignty to invite everybody. But not everybody makes it. And it's a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of having a relationship with God. And while everybody's invited, not everybody comes. And there's a lot of really powerful things in this parable that are very, very instructive for us uh, to learn from And that also pertained to us. In fact, I want to ask you, can you find yourself in this parable? You know, everybody's in this parable somewhere. And beginning in Matthew chapter 22, now this is right before Jesus, to give some context, right before he's about to be crucified. Just hours, you know, before he'll be giving the Olivet Discourse, or a couple days before the Olivet Discourse, which is going to be hours, uh, you know, uh, away from, you know, not long from the Last Supper. And then that'll be hours, I should say, from his arrest and then the crucifixion the next day. So a lot of this stuff happens pretty quickly, uh, as far as succession goes. And in Matthew 22, he gives us because he's warning the nation of Israel that they've been invited, that God wants them in the kingdom. It's a picture of entering into the kingdom, but they need to make a choice and. It pertains not just to Jews being invited in Israel, but it pertains to everybody because he goes beyond Israel when much of Israel rejects the call and invites everyone. You've been invited. What are you doing with that invitation to the wedding? How many of you like weddings? Weddings are awesome, but this is going to be the wedding of all wed- weddings. Amen. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, Now it becomes really clear as you go through this parable. The father is the king. uh, The son is Jesus. Verse 3, And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Can you imagine... A wedding feast that's being put on by a king, right? Can you imagine the festivities? Can you imagine the food? Can you imagine? I mean, it would be, be pretty crazy. And it would be like almost, it would be ridiculous not to want to go, especially if he was a really good king, which the Father, father in Heaven is. And this, this king is a picture of him. And they were unwilling to come, verse 3. Again, he sent out others. We just read that, and everything's butchered. And then we read in verse 5, but they paid no attention and went their way one to his own farm, another to his business. This was considered like an incredible insult uh, to the king, to his son, uh, to all that was being put on for the folks. And, uh, well, there's a pretty radical response. Verse 6, And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. So they just refused to come. They seized his servants, they abused them, and they put him to death. Now that is a horrendous that's a response of antagonism and hatred toward the king and his servants. And you have to keep in mind this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture of God the Father sending his son. This is a picture of God sending his prophets into the world to the Jewish nation pleading with them to repent of rebellion against the king. Amen. Because they're in rebellion, they're living in sin, they're not subordinate to his sovereignty, his rulership, his leadership, and uh, th- but guess what? Even though they've been rebellious, right? You got to keep the context in mind, because they, th- these citizens represent Israel. They represent uh, Israel in rebellion to God, and he sent servant after servant, amen, prophet after prophet to them, right? You know, in fact, Elijah the prophet says, you know, which of the prophets have you not killed, right? They killed a lot of prophets. Isaiah was sawn in half, right? Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and left for dead. Okay? Uh, And so the picture here is Israel being invited to come to the Lord over and over again and be restored to him. And continuing in the rebellion, actually killing the prophets of God. So it's it's really heavy. And then in verse 7, But the king was enraged enraged God th- the Bible does teach that God gets angry okay amen. the Bible says be angry and don't sin amen? amen God never sins in his anger which we call it righteous indignation amen? amen so uh we're made to have the propensity or the ability to have anger but we have a fallen nature so our anger can take on ugly turns and the Bible says don't the Bible says be angry and sin not don't give a foothold to the devil so we can be uh Satan can use our anger as humans right to where we go beyond a line of trying to fix something because we're upset that something got messed up, to where we cause even more damage, which w- is wicked. And the reason we got angry becomes then uh, folly to us because then it shows that we're just as guilty as the person we're angry with because we're also uh, breaching r- righteousness love, and the law of love. Amen. So God's perfectly righteous in all of his anger. He's righteous in all of his attributes. But he has a perfect anger, a perfect uh, rage, anger. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So you get the context here is that God sends, and now Jesus gave some other parables right in the same vicinity. He gave the parable of the vineyard. You remember that? And the vineyard is, you know, the servants are to run the vineyard and he goes on a long journey and he sends servants to, the landowner sends servants to the vineyard to get his increase and they refuse the servants. He says, I'll send my son, you know, to talk to them. He sends his son and they kill his son. Okay, the vineyard is Israel is the vineyard. We read that in Isaiah 5 other passages. And killing the son, they didn't just reject his prophets they, killed son, they crucified Christ right? So, the, the, so the, right, the, the righteous response would be to avenge the, uh, the wickedness that's taking place and guess what? About you know, 37 years after this parable was given the Roman armies surrounded Israel and 70 A.D., it, the nation was destroyed, okay? Now, God didn't give up on them because of his grace and his promise to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he had a plan. He said he'd bring them back to becoming a nation again, which happened in May 14th and 1948, amen, because he is merciful, amen? And he's still got a plan. But those who had rejected him and refused to repent, the city was torched. This parable is really, really powerful in 70 A.D. under T- the general Titus uh, of the Romans. Now, it's interesting Verse 8 says, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Aren't you glad God didn't just stop at Israel? And he went beyond the nation of Israel and invited all of us. Amen. As many as you find, whoever you find, invite them. Everyone's welcome. Isn't that awesome? And that's because the Lord, his heart is gracious, says he has mercy over all of his works, you know. And that invitation has come to you as well. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful picture, uh, that invitation. And when I say, who are you in this parable, hopefully you're not the one rejecting the invitation to the wedding, you know. Hopefully you're one that's accepting that beautiful invitation. But i tell you what, he says in verse 9, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there invite to the wedding that's just beautiful it reminds me of his parable of the wedding or the not the wedding but the banquet the the huge banquet the supper which is very similar and uh, there's those that are invited they make excuses you know uh, but they all alike began to make excuses the first one said to him I have bought a piece of land I need to go out and look at it please consider me excused another one said I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. So it's just interesting that there's all these excuses. You can excuse yourself right into hell, man. You could just continue to make excuse after excuse after excuse not to come to the wedding, not to get right with God. And they made all kinds of excuses. And when the slave came back and reported this, this is in Luke chapter 14, by the way, verses 16 through 24. The slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household came, became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. And the slave said, Master, what, uh, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and into the, along the hedges, or as one translation, the highways and the byways. And compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. He wants his house filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That's those who had rejected the invitation. So it's amazing. He wants them to go along the highways, you know, the hedges, the byways, wherever he can find people. And even after they've gone everywhere, he saying, find more, amen? By the way, one place hopefully you find yourself in, this, in these parables is in those who are compelling others to come in. Amen. Compel them to come in. And we're called to be witnesses to the lost. We're called to preach the gospel, John 16, to all creatures, every creature. Amen. We're called in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Amen. Discipling all nations, making disciples of all the nations, all the ethnic groups. Witnessing everybody, man. And in Luke 24, we're called to go to the world and preach the repentance for the remission of sins and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Compel them to come in. How do we compel people to come in? When you're witnessing to somebody, just say, hey, Jesus died for you, loves you. No, you want to compel them to come in, amen. Oh, God has a great plan for your life. God bless you. No, you want to compel them to come in. Because people don't make choices unless they're have proper motivation amen now augustine some like to call him augustine can go you know tomatoes tomatoes either way but uh augustine was the primary theologian of the roman catholic church in the fourth century and he didn't know greek much greek and he taught that this word compel means to first use your words but if they don't listen to your invitation then use the sword is that how we're supposed to work? Do we compel people with a gunpoint or with a sword to come to Jesus? No, Jesus says, go to you know, when you go to a house, if they reject the message, just dust the feet your feet off, the dust get the you know, dust the dust off your feet. Don't dust your feet off, that would be hard to walk, you know. <laughs> but dust the dust off your feet and go to the next house, Amen. Jesus said, If my kingdom was of this world, John eighteen thirty six, then my servants would fight, Amen. His kingdom isn't of this world, Amen. Oh, there's going to come time when he comes back on the white horse, right? The sword that protrudes from his mouth. Destroy the Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth, the brightness of his coming with armies of heaven, amen? There's a come when, because this earth belongs to him. And when he, the kingdom comes, ultimately, amen? But right now, man, we're ambassadors for Christ, amen? And unfortunately, when Augustine taught that wicked lie that compelled me to use the sword and wrested the word from its context, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church had used Augustine's teaching to justify the Inquisitions and use physical force to force people to become Roman Catholics. That's wicked, okay? It's not biblical. That's not a true expression of Christianity. We compel people to come in by giving them the Lord's promises and His warnings regarding the Gospel. Amen? You know, the Apostle... Uh, we, we, the Bible says that the law leads us people to Christ amen it's a tutor that leads people to Jesus amen so I'll tell you what people don't know they need a savior until they realize that they've broken God's moral law, amen so we we, we share with with them Moses before they can come understand they need Jesus amen you know I'm not talking about the mosaic law but I'm talking about the law that's written on our hearts you know that you know we we, we let them know hey we, we might you know give them like the good person test or something have you ever told a lie, you know? Have you ever had impure thoughts, you know? Have you ever put something before God, you know? And, you know, have on and on and on. Ever committed adultery in your heart, you know? Ever taken something that didn't belong to you? And of course, anyone who's honest because the Bible says, and it's true, it's a reality, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, amen? There's none righteous, no, not one. Then they recognize, they'll admit, most people, almost everybody says, yeah, I've done some of those things. Well, yeah, all have sinned. And the wages of sin is death, Amen. You, bring the, you pray to be used by God, and the Holy Spirit will convict them, and they get the conviction of the Holy Spirit to realize, wow, I'm in trouble without God. And I need, I need what am I going to do? And Paul, he said when he became aware of the law, because he said when he was a child, he didn't understand you know, what sin was. Then he said he became aware of the law. And he said when he got old enough, he came to a point where he realized what it meant not to covet and so forth, and it increased his knowledge of sin. And then it brought him to a point where the things he wanted to do, he, you know, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he ended up doing. He realized he's a sinner. That's the context there. It's not talking about the believer. Go back and read the context. It's talking about Paul before he was saved. Uh, somebody under conviction. He says, who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? Then what did he say? Thank be to God for who? Jesus Christ. Amen. The law. God used the law to lead him to the Savior. Amen. And that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. Amen. So, and Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.9 that the law is not given for the obedient, but for lawbreakers. He says for kidnappers and murderers and homosexuals and so forth. That's why the law is given. So people recognize they've broken God's law and they need to be forgiven. And that's all of us. Amen. And then when people come under conviction, man, I mean, you give them the bad news so then they can understand the good news. Amen. If somebody doesn't know that they have a fatal disease, they're not going to take the medicine. Right, But you let them know, man, you're doomed. All of all sin and come short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. It's the point of man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. You're persuading them. You're compelling them to come in. Amen? And then, then what do you do, man? You lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did, did, did for them on their behalf with the gospel. Amen? That Jesus died for you. He was buried. He rose again. You know, Paul says in Second Corinthians uh, 5, 10, and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that's not, we're, that's not judgment for salvation. We're not judged regarding salvation. We're trusting Jesus. We're already saved. The Bible says if you're putting your trust in Jesus, believing, present tense, you will not come into condemnation, but you've passed from death to life. Okay? It's a beautiful, John 5, 24, beautiful promise. You've passed from death to life. You will not come into condemnation. But we will be judged as believers according to our works as far as rewards go and what we don't get. And he talks about how, for, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Because everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to give an account. Therefore, we persuade men. We compel them. We persuade them. But we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. And then Paul goes on to talk about how we're ambassadors. But he goes on to emphasize what Jesus did for us. Therefore, verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter, we are ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ. We beg you on behalf of Christ. I mean, this is not just an invitation, hey, you're invited. This is like, man, please come. Please come. We plead with people. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Christ became the sin offering. He became the one who partook of our penalty on the cross. So you let people know. Guess what? We are doomed because we broke his law. But he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? And we ought to be pleading with people. We ought to be. He says, we beg you. be." Re- I mean, that's, that's right there. That's in the Greek too. We beg you to be reconciled to God. And we need to have a more of a passion to try to bring the lost to Christ. And not just be, humble, you know, no big deal. No, man, this is life and death. This is heaven and hell. This is eternity, you guys. God, give us a passion to want to witness the lost and want to obey Jesus and go to the highways and byways and go into all the world. Amen? And and this, you know, all of us need to do more. Myself included. All of us need to, God, help us to, you know, reach as many people as possible and compel them to come in because the king says he wants his house to be filled. And even when they came back saying, hey, whew, got a lot of egos. Get back out there, man. Go to the highways and byways until my house is filled, you know. And we want people to be reconciled to God, not just because of what they're going to face without the Lord, but because what they're going to miss when they don't have the Lord, amen? And the, this wedding banquet that has eternal ramifications, and, and we preach the gospel to them. And the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I declare unto the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast that which was first declared to you, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. Amen. That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you preach the fear of God to someone, the Bible says the fear of the Lord, and you let them know, hey, you're in danger of judgment. Hell is real, man. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is beginning to what? Begin to Wisdom. And in Proverbs 1.7, it says, the, beginning of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So when you bring the fear of God upon a person, that begins to get their insight. They begin to grow in knowledge of not just the physical world we live in, but that there's a spiritual, a moral world that we live in that makes sense of a lot of things, you know, uh, that they grew up with, struggling with, sin, guilt, those kinds of things, how they treat each other, the, the consequences and so forth on a spiritual level. You, you show them divine revelation, you know, God's spoken to us. Through the prophets, we have evidence of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that have come to pass. And guess what? You, pre- preach, the, you, pre- you preach who the Lord is and his divine judgment. And then the fear of the Lord begins, opens our to knowledge and wisdom. That's awesome. But guess what? You preach the gospel to him, now the good news. The Bible says in Romans 2, 4, The kindness of the Lord leads us to what? Repentance. Amen? That's how you compel people to come in. Through the gospel. Amen? You compel them to come in by sharing with them what Jesus did for them, who he is. God became a man, and he suffered the worst death anyone could suffer because he took your sins and everybody else's sins upon himself at the cross. Amen? And now guess what you have going? You have the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. Amen? Dividing bone and marrow, right? Soul and spirit. Penetrating their hearts, bringing conviction. I need to get right with God. Then you, then you show them the beauty of the Savior, that they can be saved, that they can turn to him in faith, not through working for it, but through just putting their trust in him, l- turning to him in faith that they can be saved from all their sins. By grace are we be saved through faith that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not a works, any which should boast. And all of a sudden they see the, the beauty of what Jesus did for them, and it's like, how could I not come to him, amen? Well, they should be there, right? But some will still, unfortunately, reject the invitation So let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And let's pick it up around verse uh, where we left off. Verse 10. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Amen. I know one place we are most, hopefully all of you, God knows your heart, is... Hopefully you're one that accepted the wedding gift, the wedding invitation. Amen. Number two, hopefully you've gone beyond accepting the wedding invitation and now you starting to talk, starting to invite others. Amen. Amen. Hopefully that's you too in that parable as well. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Wow. Now, verse 12. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here? without wedding clothes and the man was speechless that's heavy because we read in verse 13 then the king said to the servants bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth okay the picture is the king's wedding hall you know outside just all lit up all beautiful and this man comes in with his own clothes on you know and he's thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Obviously, uh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is, goes beyond just him being bummed out that he's not at a wedding because it's a picture of the kingdom of heaven, remember. This is being cast into hell, being separated from God forever where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the scriptures say. Jesus said over and over again when he described hell. And it's a powerful, powerful picture. Now, we don't, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the wedding garments because... A month and a half ago, I did a whole message on, on being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You remember that? So I don't want to get too strong in emphasizing something that I just did a whole teaching on from Genesis to Revelation. But I want to say this much. The Bible says that our own good works before God are like what? Filthy Amen. Filthy rags. Good job. They're like filthy rags before God. And that Hebrew word filthy rags speaks of the menstrual clause. And it's like saying, hey, God, look at me and how good I am. And you're holding a bunch of menstrual claws in, in his face. And guess what? Those uh, menstrual claws, Steve Aguilar, we did a, one of the men's retreats. Uh, I'm not even going to go there, Steve. That was too raunchy. But it was, it was a powerful illustration. He basically had like a cardboard thing cut up. And kind of like they weren't used. But it was just his picture was like this is how offensive that is God saying, hey, look, I'm right before you look at me. And when you go to the Old Testament, the menstruation period, ta- that was a picture of uncleanness and impurity. And when we say, hey, God, I'm going to come in on my own righteousness, it says all of our righteousness is like filthy garments. Like we're c- so before God, if you come to God in your own righteousness, you need to accept me because I'm just a righteous guy. God's going to say, "Woo! no, you're not, man. You're wicked. In fact, the Bible describes our sin to vomit, to feces, to all kinds of disgusting things, you know. Because we're an abomination to God when we, we sin. When we rebel against him, we do our own thing. When we're rebelling, we're like our own little gods, right? So the king had provided his own, uh, evidently, his own garments for them to wear. And those, the, what garments has he provided us for? wear? Because he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we know throughout scripture that we read about the garments of salvation. We read about being robed in the righteousness of Christ, amen? Paul said that I would not be found in my own righteousness, you want to be found on your own robes, man. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ in Philippians chapter 3, amen. So that's why we cannot come to him based on our works. Pretty much all the different religions teach that we're saved by as much as we could do. And, and by trying to be perfect and, and being good. Well, it's not acceptable, you know. Because it doesn't pay off all the bad that we've done. If you're involved in a hit and run and the cops chase you and you get away, but then you obey the law for the next three years. That same cop finally finds you and pulls you over. You say, hey, I've been good for three years. That takes care of that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't take care of your sin. Because when we're obedient, that's what's due. We're not paying back anything. And so we're guilty as charged. Not of just a hit and run. We're guilty of all kinds of sin. Psalmist talked about his sins were like the number of hairs on his head. Every time we fall short of glory, God's glory. Every time we live selfishly in, in this carnal world that we're in. So this guy came in his own wedding clothes, which was like filthy rags, standing out, you know, where we have to come through faith in Christ and his atonement, his death for our sins, his burial, his resurrection. So when you're trusting Jesus, amen, your sins are forgiven. You become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And you're declared righteous, not based on your, any of your own goodness, but based on his goodness, amen? Based on what he did for you on the cross and his resurrection, amen? And that's powerful. That's powerful. Because Satan accuses you day and night. And he accuses you. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren, amen? He's the prosecuting attorney, amen? Amen. In Revelation 12, it says he accuses day and night before, before God. Oh, yeah, he takes strips down here and says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's got a couple different jobs he does, right? But you know what the Bible says? That Jesus is our defense attorney. Amen? I love that, man. 1 John chapter 2, first couple verses. You know, he talks about, I write these things that you don't sin, but if any of you do sin, you have, to have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, Amen. And that word advocate was used in the first century for a defense attorney. And I just love it that our defense attorney before the Father in heaven when Satan accused us, I just love it. I love this and I've shared it before that our defense attorney is the son of the judge. Isn't that cool? And the Father loves him and he hates the prosecutor. Okay? He really does. Hates him. But you know what? It's not based on, you know, him just... Hating the prosecutor and loving his son, it's based on facts. When Jesus pleads our case, amen, he always lives to make intercession for us, it says. He bears the wounds where he paid in full the the price of our condemnation. So we're declared righteous through faith in him, amen. But this man shows up in his own righteousness and he's thrown hand and foot into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The last verse, 14 For many are called, but few are what? But few are chosen. Many are called. Everybody's invited. Many as opposed to few, right? But few are chosen. And when you look at the word chosen, that brings up the doctrine of election, you know, and predestination and, and being chosen. You know, it's interesting. In Jesus' teaching, who were the ones who were rejected? Who weren't chosen? The ones who what? Rejected, come, rejected the invitation. Who were the ones that, and the guy that came in his own righteousness refused to come on God's terms, amen? So it's not hard to figure out as you, go, as you read through scripture, election is based on the gospel call for whosoever will. Based on the love of God, he predestined us in love. And predestination and election are different aspects of, of, of God's workings in our lives. And... We read in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. But go to verse 3. Look at verse 3. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were what? They were unwilling to come. Okay? Those who aren't chosen are the ones who are unwilling to accept the invitation. It's that simple. Okay? A lot of people want to make predestination and election this great mystery. And by the time they're done with it, they, ter- they turn God into a monster that creates most people to be predestined to hell without any hope because he, wa- he gets joy out of watching them burn forever. That's not the God of the Bible, guys. Okay? It's actually not very complicated doctrine. He wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? Amen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the so of the world that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, it's interesting when we look at these passages and we look at his invitation here, it's important to understand that in Matthew chapter 23, just after this, he pleads with Israel who's rejecting the invitation. Look at verse 37. He pleads with them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. That's those who... Brought the invitation. Do you get it? How often I wanted to what? How often I what? I wanted. That was his will. How often I willed or I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were what? Unwilling. Did Jesus want to gather them? Yes or no? Who was unwilling? Him or them? If someone's not elect, is it because he doesn't want them or is it because they don't want him? Because they don't want him. Behold, your house is being left to you what? Desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's at the end of the tribulation period when Israel's been disciplined after they've been brought back to become a nation again, which has happened. And they cry out to him in the wilderness. You know. Blessed is he who come name of the Lord. that pray for the Messiah to come. They're crying out to him. And guess what? It says they'll see him they pierce. Be, that's what it says in the Old Testament. They'll see the one they pierce and be like, whoa, it's Jesus. Amen. The one we pierce and it says they'll weep for him as one weeps for his only son. And Isaiah 53 talks about, they'll say, we thought he was stricken by God. But he, but the iniquity of us is always put upon him. They'll come to an understanding of what he did for them. That's prophecy in the Old Testament. That's heavy. And there will be a remnant of Israel saved. All Israel, all Israel. Uh, the Jews that turned to him at that time will be be delivered. It's beautiful. Now it's interesting how often I would, I willed, I wanted to gather together the hen and desert chicks, but you were what? Unwilling. In fact, when Jesus says these kinds of things, go ahead and look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And when you get there, go ahead and go to verse 41. We have Jesus Lamenting over Jerusalem again for rejecting the gospel. Verse 41. When he, speaking of Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and what? He wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. See, if you reject the light that God gives you, we call it in theology, a judicial hardening. If you reject the light he gives you, keep rejecting it. You won't respond. He'll give you over. He'll take that light away eventually and you'll be given over to greater darkness. And now these things are hidden from you because they rejected the light that he gave them. Because in John chapter 12, verse 34, 35, he says, walk in the light and you will become children of the light. He pleads with them. Okay, in John chapter 5, verse 34, 35, he says, you know, I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved. In verse 39 and 40, he says, you search the scriptures diligently because in them you believe that you have eternal life, but it's these that speak of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Man, you guys are students. You're devouring the scripture, but they speak of me. And I'm saying these things that you may be saved. That's my purpose of speaking to you. Don't tell me it wasn't his will to save them. And then he says, but you were unwilling to come to me that you might have life. The onus is on us. When we stand before God, no one will say it's because of a decree and you never wanted me in the first place. Noah says we will be without excuse. The best, best excuse you could ever make. If, if unconditional election was true, well, you damned me from before the world was and I had no choice and you created me just to be doomed. And you know, that would be the best excuse ever, but there would be no excuse because it will be on us. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2, I think verse 10, the NIV states that those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace that could be theirs the grace is there but will you receive it will you accept it you know so this election i mean it, i mean it's really powerful here in verse 41 and and following because uh in luke 19 verse 41 42 43 verse 43 says from the day uh For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they did that around 68, actually. And it took place for a couple years where they were barricaded in. And uh, Jesus said, when you see the Jerusalem to his disciples, his apostles, who were Jews that had accepted the light of the gospel, he said, when you see Jerusalem encompassed by armies, flee to the mountains, right? They did. And there was a time... Where Vespian and Titus were the guys that, you know, Titus and his son, Vespian, took uh, Jerusalem. But there was a time during that two years where there was a lull. They couldn't penetrate totally because the Jews were, you know, uh, I mean, it beca- Josephus and Josephus Wars talks all about this. The first century historian. But it's quite fascinating because it was a time where they had to go into another war. And many of the, many of the military people left the encampment. And at that time, many believers in Jesus were able to split and break through and go to Pella, in, in, uh, or by the Jordan, I'm sorry, and have respite and peace. And there's a, a Christian community of believers started from those who had escaped. We read that from early church history. It's pre-, pretty fascinating, just as Jesus had taught. But we read here in verse 44, and they will level you to the ground, and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize, because look at this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation brothers and sisters have you recognized the time of your visitation i believe there comes a time in each and every person's life where god makes himself known to them where he begins to reveal himself to somebody a time of visitation at least once but if you reject the light that he offers you and you continue to reject it all you're going to be left with is your own darkness that's heartbreaking you know Praise God, we all have a, a time of visitation. The Bible says, Jesus said, in John chapter 1, we read, uh, the, uh, to say the Gospel of John says, that Jesus enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world, amen? John 16, he convicts the world of sin, amen? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. We, got, we have an awesome God. Now, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, he talks about growing to your fa- in your faith. And we had like a, I don't know, six or seven part, seven or eight part message. I think it was like eight parts are growing in your, in, your, in your faith, amen? Where you, you know, it says to, you know, add to your faith these various communicable attributes that God allows us to grow in. And we looked at one after the other. We had a good time in that passage. But he says, if you do these things, you know, you'll never fall. You won't fall, which is beautiful, promise, right? But if you don't, he says, you'll become blind and short-sighted. And it warns about failing to enter into the kingdom there. And it, and it says, you'll, and then he says, therefore, instead, make your, make your calling and election sure. Therefore, make your calling. This is in chapter 1, verses like 8 through 11 or so. And he says, make your calling and election Sure. Now, some teach unconditional election, choosing. Election is being chosen by God. They say, well, you have no choice in your election. Well, no, we're seeing that they didn't, were chosen because they refused to come. But you have a, I remember uh, I did a little message one time. Remember when George Bush was running against Gore and there was all those chads that didn't get all punched all the way through, you know? And it was an election and a lot of people didn't punch their chads all the way through and then it went to the Supreme Court and Bush ended up winning. Can you imagine Al Gore as president, you know? He had all these crazy stories. It would been entertaining, but it had been scary. Uh, but it's interesting. I did a message on make your calling election sure right after that election. I thought, that's perfect. You've got to make sure you punch. <laughs> You've got to make sure you say yes to Jesus, amen? Make your calling election sure. You have a responsibility to receive the invitation, amen? Receive his calling. And then you're, when you receive the gospel, then the, effectual, then the calling becomes effectual. You're responsible, you know? And to make your calling an election sure. And most commentators point out that Peter is saying that we have a responsibility in our election. To accept or reject the Lord's call. And I think it's very, very important that we understand that. Peter goes on to say in chapter 3 verse 17 of that same book. Therefore, dear friends or beloved, since you have been forewarned, been forewarned ahead of time, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Okay, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now, both now and forever. Amen. The anecdote to falling from, we're in a, if you're in Christ, you're in a secure position, but don't allow yourself to be carried away by lawless men. And by the way, that term lawless is used earlier in chapter two of Second Peter of those in Sodom, and Gomorrah, and he's talking about those who twist the Scriptures. And now today we have all kinds of people twisting Scripture to justify that kind of behavior and teaching believers that. And it says they go after those who are unstable to fourteen of Second Peter, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, verses eighteen and nineteen of Second Peter, and also not just those who are barely escaping, but those who are in a secure position. Okay, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think you're a big shot in Jesus. There's no way you could fall. Peter said, hey, they may all deny you, but I'm ready to go to prison death with you, right? And just hours later, he's denying him three times. Okay? Let him who thinks he stands, Paul says, take heed lest he fall. And right before that, he says, I beat my body down. So after I preach the gospel to others, I myself would not become a dakamas, which means be without Christ. So we need to continue to look to Jesus and make your calling and election sure. Now, it's interesting there's so many beautiful passages on election. I love Ephesians 1, if you could go there. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. When did God know that you would ex- respond to him? When did God know that you'd accept the gospel? Did he just figure it out when he kind of saw, you know, you coming up at some altar call? No. From before the foundations amen. of the world, amen. Oh, amen? Why? Because God's omniscient. Because he's all-knowing. He knows everything, amen? He knows everything, I believe he doesn't only know everything that will happen, but he also knows all the counterfactuals. That's how smart he is. That's how, that's how wise he is. He's all wise that he knows all the hypotheticals. He knows what would happen if you did this in this situation instead of that. That's a powerful God. And I know that because when David is hiding in, in Kyla from King Saul, and he says, Lord, God, you know, is he going to come to Is, is King Saul going to come here? And if he is, are these folks going to hand me over? Because they're all friendly to him. Are they going to hand me over to him? The Lord says, yes, he's going to come. And yes, when he comes, the people will hand you over to him. And he gives them a little extra. And you'll be killed. So he takes off. Amen. So God even knows, God even knows the hypotheticals. Isn't that heavy? So some people say, well, he really can't know something unless he decrees it. A lot of my reform friends say, theologians say that. I'm like, that's a weak view of God. I can show you in scripture if the preaching that was done at Capernaum Jesus says was done at uh, you know at Sodom they would have repented a long time ago he knows exactly what would happen in every situation he's such an amazing God so yes he can know ahead of time the free choices that people will make and he can know whether you're responding or not Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 and 12 it says in him we also were what we are cho- we are also, we were also chosen Having been predestined according to the plan, according to what? The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What's his plan? We were predestined, we were chosen in him and predestined according to his plan. What plan? Look at verse 12. In order that we who were the first to put our what? Hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. It's talking about the plan of redemption that those who would put their faith or hope in Jesus would be saved. He predestined people. He chose people, okay, for knowing those who would what? Knowing those who would reject the hope of the gospel and knowing who would accept the hope of the gospel, okay? Are you following me? It's the scriptures. It says it right there. We're chosen to him according to his plan. He knows ahead of time who will reject the plan and who will accept it. It's not that complicated, okay? It's beautiful, actually. In fact, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter eight. Now everybody loves Romans eight twenty-eight. That's such a beautiful verse. But I love Romans tw- eight twenty-nine as well. For those whom he what foreknew, he also what predestined. Okay, prognosko. Okay, gnosko means to know. Pro is before preposition. He knows beforehand, and he acts beforehand. Based on his what? Well, let's see. Verse 28. and we know. Uh, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. Amen. Amen? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So he predestined us. And this text here is speaking specifically of us being conformed to his son. Okay? But on what basis did he predestine us? See the first word in verse 29? For whom he what? Foreknew. First line. The ones he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge comes before what? Predestination. Okay. He foreknows who will accept and who will reject him. Who will love him and who will not love him. Well, is that the context, Joe? Absolutely. What's the first word of verse 29? For. It's a conjunction. It connects it to verse 28. Look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who what? Love God. love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So we always quote that verse. It's a beautiful verse, but guess what? It's, it's theologically charged with verse 29. It's powerful. For we know that God works all things together for the good for those who love God Amen. and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew who? Who does he foreknow? Those who will love him. Do you see how election works and predestination works? Yeah. For whom he foreknew, the ones that would love him, he predestined to conformed to the image of his son. Amen? Yeah. And it's so clear. There's not one verse in the Bible that says God willy nilly, arbitrarily, just predestines most people to hell, and he doesn't want to save them. It's not, not in the Bible. This all comports perfectly with the gospel, what I'm saying here. Amen? Yeah. God is so good. Yeah. And it's interesting. Guess what it says in 1 Corinthians 8 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Isn't that amazing? I love that. It's just a little verse. I love it. If anyone loves God, he's known by him. 1 Corinthians later, chapter 16, cursed are the ones who do not love the Lord. But if you love God, he knows. And he knew before the foundation of the world. Faith works through love, that scriptures say. Galatians 5, 6, I think. Amazing. And by the way, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm um, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. It says that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Aren't you glad that God had a plan? He knows what he's doing. You know, some, some theologians, liberal theologians, they presented as though, wow, oh Jesus, he killed Jesus, I can't believe it, I've got to change up my plan now. What in the world? That was God's plan before the foundation of the world ascended Son His of the world. It was all prophesied in the Old Testament. Amen. Yeah. Just, you know, God's an amazing God. Now he knows what's in someone's heart. And he looks at our hearts. And he makes choices based on our responses. John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Says, now when he, speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Many believed in his name, observing his signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. These were people that had a superficial faith, but as you go through John, they were unwilling to leave the synagogues. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogues, and Jesus said they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They didn't want to be persecuted. And he knew what was in their hearts. And even though they had a superficial belief, it says he didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in their hearts. He looks at our hearts. And he chooses whether or not he accepts us based on the choices we make. Whether we're going to respond or reject him. You know, go to First Timothy chapter 2, if you will. First Timothy chapter 2. Paul is one of my, I just love, love the Apostle Paul and, uh, His whole, you know, this conversion and his love for the Lord and his letters and his journeys when you go through the book of Acts. Absolutely amazing. And Paul talks about, and I just love Paul because he recognizes how beautiful, and we all should, our Savior is. How wonderful he is in saving us and how we all deserve to be doomed and we should all be incredibly grateful for what he's done for us. Amen. And I can identify with Paul because of where I was at before I was saved. And I'm like so thankful for his mercy and his grace. And, and it's amazing because when I read Paul, I'm like, it's so, there's no doubt it's the word of God, right? But it's just so authentic as to, wow, I could so relate to his response being saved by God's grace because I lived a hellish life before Jesus and was antichrist. And in verse 13 we read, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Amen. More than abundant. When did God put Paul into service? Did he do it just hoping that Paul would... No, he did it based on his foreknowledge. He saved him knowing that he would put his trust in him. And look at chapter 1 verse 12. The verse that I skipped. Get the context here. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he what? He considered me or counted me faithful. He knew that he'd be faithful putting me into service. God uses his foreknowledge. Okay? And in verse 15 this is a verse for all of us. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am what? foremost of all and Paul's point there is if he saved him as the worst sinner he could save a bunch of black sheep, amen which we all have been amen and he makes us white as snow by his precious grace amen now it's amazing because Paul goes on to say that whoever would believe in him that God saved him as the foremost of sinners he goes on to say so that everybody else who comes later in the future would know that God accepts them Amen. So in other words, you're supposed to draw a line from your relationship with Jesus and whether he'll accept you to Paul and say, wow, he's of worst sinners and therefore God will accept me. And that's even stated. It's not something that you basically deduce or, it, you know, inductively figure out. It's something that's just right there. Boom, there it is. He saved me so others would know in the future that if they'd come, they too would be accepted because he's the worst of sinners. Wow. That's just, isn't that beautiful? John 6, 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out any. Amen? What a beautiful promise. You come to Jesus, are you coming? It's in the present tense. He's not going to cast you out. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise. Now go to Isaiah chapter 65, because we're looking in the parable of the wedding feast of how Jesus is responding and treating and dealing with the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. Verse 2, I love this man. It's quoted in Romans 9, which really shows the heart of God in election there as well. I have spread out my hands, or 9 and 10, I have spread out my hands all day long. To a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. All day long, man. Not just, hey, why don't you come? Okay. No, all day long. He pleads, he pleads, he pleads, he pleads, he pleads all day. Hours and hours go by. It's, uh, It's noon, it's three, it's five, it's seven. He continues. It's a picture of him. Just continue to plead, Come. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Amen. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Amen. He's constantly calling them. Come and take the water of life freely. He's constantly calling them. Come. Come. With tears, he weeps. He wept over Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered together as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. And they were unwilling to come to the wedding feast. I'm saying these things that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Or you come on your own terms. Oh, I'm not going to accept his blood. I'm going to get in based on my moral high standing because I'm a righteous guy or gal. Wrong. It's got to be on his terms because he alone is the one who's paid for your sins and your sins are still in his face if you go some other way. But he all day long is stretching out his hands. Well, what happens? Go ahead and look at verse 8. I will bring forth the offspring from Jacob. And an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it. Verse 8. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 8. Verse 9. Okay, I'm sorry. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Well, there's some who are chosen. Who are the chosen? Those who respond to his call. Who are the ones who aren't chosen? Check it out. It's real clear. Look at verse 11. But you who what? But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, which is a false demon God, and who fill cups mixed with, mixed with wine for destiny. Another false God. I will destine you to what? I will destine you to the sword. You might circle the word destine there. I will destine you to the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Because I what? I called. He tells them why they're destined for the sword. He says, all day long I pleaded with you to come, all day long. And you refused to come. Instead you worshiped idols, amen? And then he says, I'm going to destine you for the sword. Is he going to destine for the sword based on some mysterious decree where eternally he hates people forever and he doesn't want them to be saved? No, he's pleading with them all day long. And they're destined for the sword. Why are they destined for the sword? And by the way, when do you think they were destined originally? Before the world was. He knew what was going to go, go down here. He says, he gives us exactly why. Verse 12, look at it. I will destine you for the sword, and all you will bow down to slaughter, because, because, there's a cause. What's the cause, Father? Because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight. And what? And what? Chose. You might circle that word, chose, and tie it to the word, Destined. And chose that in which I did not delight. He destines us based on our choice to reject his call and choose evil. He doesn't do it willy-nilly. He doesn't do it arbitrary. He doesn't say one, two, three, four, you get in the door, five, six, you're in a fix, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You get in heaven just arbitrary. No, it's based on whether we put our trust in Jesus or not. Amen? Or whether we reject him or not. So clear. So clear. All day long, I called. You rejected my call. Therefore, I've destined you to destruction because you chose the other path. That's how this works. Now, guess what? We would all, we'd all chose the other path. Amen. But he calls us by his grace to come to him. Amen. He convicts us. His kindness leads us to repentance. You know that verse where it says in Romans 2 4, it says, kindness that leads us to repentance? In theology, we call that pre-regenerating grace or really prevenient grace but prevenient is an old English word so I like to sometimes use the word pre-regenerating pre-salvation grace it's his kindness that leads us to repentance he doesn't just have grace on us when we come to him long before you came to Jesus man he was already showing you grace drawing you by his spirit nobody can come to me Jesus said, unless the father draws him amen so he's already drawing you and it says his kindness leads to repentance but he says you reject his kindness the very next verses. And you treasure up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath because in your stubborn hearts, he talks about how they reject him. So it says kindness wants to bring people to repentance. That's, that's his will. But guess what? He allows us because he doesn't want a bunch of robots. He wants real agents, real people made in his image that have a relationship with him to either accept his love and be saved or to reject it. And in First Timothy 2, 4 through 6, right after he says, that he's the foremost of all sinners and that God saved him so we could all come and know that we would be saved. He goes on to say, for God is not willing that what? any would perish, but that what? Go ahead and turn there because we only have a couple verses left. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Talks about it being just, God wills that all will be saved. Come to knowledge of the truth. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Go ahead and 1 Timothy 2.4. This is good and acceptable in the set of God our Savior, verse 3, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Who desires some men? Most men? All men. I remember Spurgeon was having a hard time with people that were saying that he doesn't want all to be saved. And Spurgeon said, in his commentary in this verse, Charles Spurgeon, who I differ with his views on election, but he was right in this point. He says, it says all men. If the Holy Ghost wanted to say some men, he would, have tra- he would have inspired Paul to say some men, you know. But he inspired him to say all men. He wills that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one, medi- one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for a few, some, most, all, amen, which is also needs to be accepted, by the way. Not just his will to save all, but he gave himself for all. Amen? Amen. It's the same all. The testimony given at the proper time. So we're called to go in the highways and byways to everyone and compel them to come in. You can't compel everyone to come in if Jesus didn't die for everybody. Amen? Amen. You can't tell somebody, hey, you can, you can be saved. You can't. That's a lie. If he didn't die for everybody, they can't be saved. He gave himself for everybody. He wants his house to be filled. Amen. I was reading a... Uh, Popular, Well, uh, they're probably not popular. I don't know how you can even sing these words in a church, but a a particular Baptist hymn, Reformed Calvinistic hymn. Can you imagine singing this? It's one of the hymns. We are the Lord's elected few. Let all the rest be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We won't have heaven crammed. I didn't make that up, man. I got that from a Calvinistic source. We are all the Lord's elected few. Let all the rest be damned. There is room enough in hell for you. We won't have heaven crammed. Jesus said, Go to highways and byways, compel them to come in because he wants his house to be crammed. He wants to be filled. Amen. What an awesome God we have. Go to 1 P- Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And this is, you know, Timothy is awesome. Paul's letters to Timothy. Yeah, for for, it is, uh, for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of who? Who's the Savior of who? All men, especially of believers. What's that saying, man? He's the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. How is he the Savior of all men, but especially of believers? He's the Savior of all men in the sense that he is atonement, he gave himself as a ransom for all. We just read in 1 Timothy 2.6, 2, right? He died for everybody, so he's the Savior of the world. He died, everybody could be saved. But especially of those who believe. Okay? Salvation is only effectual to those who put their trust in Christ and accept what he did on their behalf on the cross. That's the only way you can be saved. Amen? You have to put your trust in Jesus, even though he provided salvation for everyone. But he calls us all, come to me, all of you who are weary, and heavily burdened, I will give you rest for your souls. Amen. I love Isaiah 44:22. Turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to him right now, brothers and sisters. If you're not saved yet, turn to him and then you'll be a brother or sister. If you're already saved, keep trusting in Jesus, man. Make your, make your calling and election sure. Revelation 22, 7. I love it. And the spirit and the bride say come. And whoever's thirsty, let him come. And whoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely or without cost. Amen. That's in the last book, in the last chapter, last book, verse 17. And the spirit of the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. And let him who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's NASB translation. Brothers and sisters, man, everybody's invited. And it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit, amen, convicts the world of sin, saying, come to everyone. And the bride, who's the bride of Christ? Church. Now this blows me away. Can't get my brain around it. We're not just invited to the wedding as guests. When we accept his call, there's a surprise. You become part of the bride. Amen. Amen. And you say, that's, that's, that's crazy, but it's crazier than you think. Well, it's a metaphor though, right? It's a metaphor. But the pictures on earth, like I'm the vine, you're the branches. Yeah, the, he's not a literal vine. The vine's a picture of him. But what's the greater vine? Jesus, amen. amen, Amen. When we're talking about being wedded to Him as a bride of Christ, an earthly bride is beautiful, but what's the most incredible bride going to be? And bridegroom by far, it's way bigger and way more. It's huger, huger. That is in the dictionary. I said it once. Somebody said, but "I don't think that's a word," you know. <laughs> and uh, I go, "I don't know. I think it might be." And somebody looked it up. Oh, it's in the dictionary just doesn't sound good but I'm trying to get my you know it's galactical okay whatever you want it's just like so amazing, amazing. what was that word Jimmy last week somebody said it, I think you said it wrong coming good brothers like Joe I just corrected me in front of a few people I think you said coming wrong it's a cumin and then Jim goes no it's cumin I go, hey, wood or water and then Jim goes to dictionary.com Jim goes to dictionary.com to, so he goes listen cumin. I go praise the Lord thank you Jesus <laughs> I wouldn't have known the difference. Wood or water, water. Tomato, tomato. I love you guys, man. But the most thing is important that you know that Jesus loves you. He wants you. If you do not end up in heaven, you cannot blame him. Amen. You're called. Many are called. Few are chosen. The question is, will you be among the few that are chosen? Jesus says, enter the straight gate. For broad and spacious the way it leads to destruction. Many go that way. But straight is the gate. Narrow is the way it leads to life. And few are those who find it. Unfortunately, people are too busy making excuses, busy with their lives. When they have no eternal hope and they don't get ready for eternity, be among the few, contrast with the many who choose to turn to Jesus and accept that invitation. And don't just get to go to the wedding, but get to be the bride forever with him. Amen? How could you reject such a great salvation? Let's stand, please, and we'll pass out the cup and the bread. What an awesome